Thank you. You said that just the way I told you to. <laughs> Would you take your Bibles and open to the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. We're going to be focusing on the first 12 verses of Luke chapter 5. Early in the 20th century, Sir Ernest Shackleton, the great South Pole explorer, placed an ad in a London newspaper. This is what it said. Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful. Shackleton expected to get only a handful of responses. Instead, he was overwhelmed by a flood of inquiries made by those who were interested in being a part of this expedition. Shackleton later said, it seemed as though all the men in Great Britain were determined to accompany us. And today, it would have been men and women. And you know, when I think about Shackleton's words and that response... One question comes to my mind. What was wrong with those people? <laughs> you see, although I would like to think that I would have been one of those who responded to Shackleton's ad, <laughs> I know myself too well and my wife knows me even better. I am not a thrill seeker. I do not hunger for new experiences. When I go to the restaurant, I want to have something I have already ordered off the menu before. When I go on vacation, I don't want an adventure. I want a comfortable room. Oh, I like adventure as much as the next person. I just prefer mine in a novel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like you don't. <laughs> as much as I hate to admit it, I am not really hero material. Henry Varley once said, it remains to be seen what God will do with a man who gives himself up wholly to him. But what I want to know is this, what can God do with somebody like me? What can God do through a truly ordinary person? And I suspect that at some point you have asked that question too. Uh, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that we're cowards or that we're lazy. It's just that we are, well, we're average. We aren't the bravest. We aren't the smartest. We aren't the strongest. We aren't the most talented. You and I are just regular. There used to be a little boy who lived behind us, and that every day when he'd come home from school, he'd ask, his mother would say, how was school today, honey? And he'd say, regular. <laughs> I mean, that, that about says it, right? That, that's what average means. It means pretty much like everyone else. To be average is to be like most of us. So I'm left with this burning question. Just what can God do with an ordinary person? 
That's why I love the story of Simon Peter. His life and his ministry answer that question for me. Consider the account of his call to serve here in Luke 5, 1 through 11, his call to serve Jesus Christ. And it's there we discover just how it is that Jesus transforms ordinary people into extraordinary disciples. For one thing, we discover that ordinary people become extraordinary disciples when they make themselves available to Jesus. Ordinary people become extraordinary disciples when they make themselves available to Jesus. You see, in the long run, the kind of disciple that you and I become does not depend on what Jesus has to work with so much as on the fact that it is Jesus doing the work. The secret to extraordinary discipleship is not making sure that we are made of the right stuff. The secret is that we have been placed in the right hands. The key is to make yourself available to Jesus. Consider Simon Peter, bleary-eyed and sore after a fruitless night of casting the net for fish. He and his companions are rinsing their nets in the shallow water of the lake. And as they hang them up to dry, Simon scans the shoreline and he sees a crowd converging on the beach. The voice that he hears above the growing murmur is a familiar one to him. So it's the figure at the center of the multitude. It's Jesus drawing the multitude to him as if they were shards of iron and he the magnet. Luke 5.1 says, The people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. But why isn't Simon one of them? Why isn't Simon part of the crowd? Is it because he thinks that Jesus is some kind of a charlatan? Well, no. At this point, Simon Peter is already a follower of Jesus Christ. The reason Peter isn't part of the crowd is because he's still on the clock. He's working. But before long, Jesus comes to him with a question. According to Luke 5.3, Jesus got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. Now, in order for Peter to comply, the nets that have been hung up to dry have to be taken down and stowed in the boat. The boats have to be launched again. It's, it's not exactly convenient. It's probably not the thing that Peter wants to do at the moment. I mean, you know how it is when you work the night shift. But Peter does it. Say, have you ever noticed that this is often true of us as well? Have you ever noticed that Christ's call to serve him frequently comes at a bad time? It often seems to come when we are in the middle of something else. We're working on our own agenda. We are established in a career. We are secure in our relationship. And then Jesus comes along and he disturbs the equilibrium with his plans. Our ship of life has been pulled up on the shore, safe and secure, until Jesus steps into it 
and tells us to push out into the water. Let me use your time, he says. But Lord, you know, I was just about to do something else. Let me use your skill, Jesus says. Well, Lord, I'm kind of busy right now doing this. Or maybe, Lord, I was kind of hoping not to be busy. I kind of didn't want to do anything right now. Let me use your resources, Jesus says. Well, Lord, that was earmarked for something else. I mean, you've got to give Simon Peter credit. When Jesus asks, he pushes off. Simon thinks he's doing Jesus a small favor. But there's always a risk when you do someone a favor. You never know what it's going to lead to. Someone asks for a ride home and you find out too late that the route that you have to take will lead you an hour out of your way. Someone asks for a small loan and it turns out to be a major commitment. Someone asks to use your pickup truck to help them move and when you arrive at the house, you discover that their possessions could fill three large vans. But what happens when it is Jesus doing the asking? Well, the truth is, when it's Jesus doing the asking, the response can be varied. Sometimes we're excited that Jesus would want to use us. Sometimes we're annoyed. But it's Jesus after all, and so we don't complain, at least not out loud. We invite Jesus into the boat and we push out from the shore only to discover something we hadn't bargained on. It turns out Jesus wasn't interested in a loan. He's interested in ownership. And it's not the boat that he wants. It's our whole life. Simon does not know at this point what he's getting into when he pushes his boat back into the water. This fisherman doesn't have any inkling that he is only one cast of the net away from an entirely new life and calling. All Peter knows at this point is that Jesus has asked him. And despite the inconvenience, Simon makes himself available. That's what makes an ordinary person the perfect candidate to become an extraordinary disciple. Ordinary people become extraordinary disciples when they make themselves available to Jesus. So let me ask you, how have you responded to Jesus' invitation to make yourself available to him? Do you know what Jesus wants from you? I can tell you. He wants to get into the boat. He wants you to place your life at his disposal. But doing that requires a measure of trust. That's the second prerequisite. Ordinary people become extraordinary disciples when they take Jesus at his word. Ordinary people become extraordinary disciples when they take Jesus at his word. Now, that sounds kind of easy, doesn't it? You know, just... Just take Jesus at his word. But it isn't. 
That's because Jesus' way of doing things and our way of doing things don't always agree. Jesus' request for the loan of Simon's boat was merely inconvenient. What he said next went beyond that. Moving from the realm of the inconvenient to the realm of the unreasonable. Unreasonable, that is, from the point of view of a professional fisherman. Jesus has finished his teaching. Simon and his small crew are left to contemplate the sound of the gulls, the lapping of the water against the boat, and the murmur of the departing crowd. Simon is just about to give the order to return to shore when Jesus speaks again. Only this time it is not a request. This time it's a command. Jesus fixes his gaze on Simon and says, Move the boat into deep water. Then Jesus turns to the crew and orders, Let down the nets for a catch. With eyebrows raised, the crew looks from Simon to Jesus, back to Simon again. They're wondering if it's a joke. They've just spent the entire night fishing without success. But Jesus' gaze is unflinching. This isn't a joke. Jesus really wants them to move into deep water and let down the net. After an uncomfortable moment of silence, Simon finally speaks in verse 5. Master, we worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. Now, frankly, this is one of those places in the Bible where I wish I could hear Simon's tone of voice. I'd like to see the look on his face. It's not hard for me to imagine a note of sarcasm or at least good-natured patience in Simon's response. I mean, after all, what does a carpenter turned clergyman have to say to a fisherman about catching fish? Well, quite a bit, if that carpenter also happens to be the creator. But Simon doesn't know that yet. To his credit, Simon still complies. He doesn't argue with Jesus. And notice that in verse 5, he calls Jesus master. This is the language of a disciple. This is the language of submission. Simon does remind Jesus that they've already spent the night lowering the net. But Simon is still willing. Now the question is why? Well, Simon himself provides the answer. Because you say so. Because you say so, Master, we will let down the nets. The Greek text literally says, at your words, at your words, or on the basis of your words. Simon doesn't understand Jesus' rationale, but he is willing to take him at his word. That is the essence of faith. Not just knowing what God has said, but taking him at his word. 
In his book entitled Waiting, Ben Patterson tells of the time that he and three friends climbed Mount Lyle, the highest peak in Yosemite National Park. The climb took most of the day because they had to cross a glacier to get to the top. Patterson and his companions started out laughing and talking together at the beginning of the climb, but soon his friends outdistanced him. That stirred Patterson's competitive nature, so he began looking for a shortcut. Finally, he spotted one. In his book, Patterson describes his experience this way. Perhaps it was the effect of the high altitude, but the significance of the two experienced climbers not choosing this path did not register on my consciousness. It should have, Patterson writes. For 30 minutes later, I was trapped in a cul-de-sac of rock atop the Lyle Glacier, looking down several hundred feet of a sheer slope of ice pitched at about a 45-degree angle. Patterson was only 10 feet from safety, but one misstep, and he wouldn't stop sliding until he hit the valley floor some 50 miles away. Patterson clung to the rock for an hour, waiting for his friends to find him. When they did, one of them used a small axe to chip two footholds in the ice. They told Patterson to step out from where he was into the new foothold. And as soon as his foot touched it, Patterson was to swing the other foot across and place it in the second foothold. At that point, his friends would be able to pull him to safety. And then Patterson's friends gave him a warning. They told him not to lean into the mountain, even though that was his only source of security. If anything, his friends urged, lean out a bit. Otherwise, your feet may fly out from under you and you'll start sliding down. Patterson was saved because he knew enough to say no to his natural impulse to cling to the security of the mountain. He knew enough to take his friends at their word. In many ways, that's where you and I are as well. That's our situation. Caught between the rock-solid security of what we already know and the untested foothold of where Jesus is taking us. Instead of leaning on our past experience, Jesus tells us to lean into his word. The biblical word for this kind of leaning is faith. It's the essence of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Oswald Chambers warns that it's easy to misunderstand what the New Testament means when it talks about being a believer. It is not that we believe Jesus Christ can do things or that we believe in a plan of salvation, Chambers writes. It is, what, it is that we believe him. Whatever happens, we will hang on to the fact that he is true. In other words, at its heart, faith is a relationship. Faith is a relationship of trust. So, what's the rock that you are tempted to cling to this morning? 
What is it that you are leaning into? Is it the rock of your own goodness? That you, you try to be as good as you can. Is it the solid security of your religious upbringing? I've been going to this church my whole life. If so, Jesus is calling you to let go of that. Let go of that and rely on him instead for righteousness. Don't try to find your own pathway into God's presence. Reach out to Jesus Christ in faith and let him carry you across the precipice of your sin. Or maybe like Simon Peter, Jesus wants to call you in, out of familiar territory into some new avenue of service. It can be more tempting to cling to the familiarity of what we already know than to risk stepping out into new territory. Even if it is Jesus doing the calling. At the same time, I, I can't help noticing that what, Peter, what Jesus asks Peter to do here, in one sense, is really thoroughly mundane. It's very ordinary. It's, it's so common. Let down the nets, Jesus says. Let down the nets. Not that again. How many times have we done that? Day after day or night after night? Master, we have worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. You know, there are some of us who have been long at our posts and we dream of doing something different for Jesus, something glorious. Instead, we seem to be left there, asked to do the same thing, asked to persist in the ordinary, asked to do the common thing, the ordinary thing, when we were hoping that the assignment would be glorious. With a sigh of resignation and perhaps a blush of embarrassment for Jesus' sake, these men let down the nets. They do it with the ease of those who have performed the task so many times that they don't have to think about it anymore. This is what they do. They are the fishermen. And just as it did so many times the night before, the net slides into the water and goes limp. Nobody enjoys seeing a good man proven wrong. But they reason to themselves, Jesus asked for it. Maybe he should stick to his own business and leave us to what we know best. He knows the word, but we know how to fish. Suddenly, their weathered hands feel a tug. It is the unmistakable pull of a catch. But what a catch! Their eyes widen with amazement. They have cast their nets like this night after night, week after week, month after month, year after year. But it was never like this. The net writhes like a living thing, so full that it's in danger of bursting. There are so many fish that the men can't even haul them into the boat. Now they're laughing and shouting. Someone is signaling to James and John, Simon's partners, to come and help. But not Simon. 
as the net is dragged aboard, weighing the craft down so much that it rides low in the water. Simon's gaze is fixed on Jesus. The fisherman's smile of patient condescension has turned to wide-eyed amazement. Amazement turns to fear. Simon falls to his knees and pleads, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. <coughs> Notice that Jesus does not disagree. Instead, he offers Simon words of hope. Don't be afraid, Jesus says. From now on, you will catch men. These are words of hope for Peter. And they are words of hope for us as well because they show us what kind of person has the potential to become an extraordinary disciple of Jesus Christ. Not superhuman people. Not people who have it all together. Not saints in that gaunt cheek, larger than life, halo wearing way that most people think of them. But ordinary people. Sinful people. People who really don't have any right to expect God to use them. People with flaws. People with weakness. People like you. Jesus' words to Simon show us that ordinary people become extraordinary disciples when they rely on Jesus' power. That's the real key. Not Simon's potential, but Christ's power. The secret is in the one who calls, not the one being called. What did Simon Peter see in this miracle that drove him to his knees in fear and trembling? Was it his own skepticism? Simon complied with Jesus' command, but maybe deep down he really didn't expect anything to come of it. Maybe it was because Simon was suddenly aware of his limitations. Perhaps up to this point, Simon thought that he knew how to fish. Jesus' miracle has shown him that he doesn't really know anything about it. Verse 9 says that they were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. But Jesus' response to Peter indicates something else. They weren't just astonished. They were afraid. Go away, Peter says. And Jesus' answer is, don't be afraid. Whatever triggered Simon Peter's response, one thing is clear. Somehow this miracle has placed a spotlight on Simon Peter, and he doesn't like what he sees. Whatever Simon thought Jesus was, at this point, he has discovered something important about himself. Simon is not ready. Simon is not righteous. Simon is not qualified for whatever it is that Jesus has in mind. 
In making this plea, Simon joins a large chorus of voices down through the ages who have felt unqualified to serve God because of their failures and limitations. Simon's not the only one who feels like this. There was Moses when God met him at the burning bush. There was Jeremiah when God told him that he would be a prophet to the nations. There was Esther when Mordecai urged her to be God's instrument and speak to the king. There was Gideon when he was called to deliver God's people from the Midianites. There was Paul when he went to Corinth in weakness, fear, and trembling. And there is you and me when we discover that Jesus has called us to love him and to serve him despite our weakness. Despite our sin, despite our history of failure, we know Jesus is calling us, but we feel like we're way out of our depth. And so we object. Surely, Lord, you can't mean me. I'm too young. I'm too old. I'm not smart enough to do that. I'm not bold enough for that. Lord, don't you remember when I did that? And each time Christ's reply comes back. Fear not. Fear not. Fear not. I will be with you. Fear not. I am sending you. Fear not. My Grace is sufficient for you. Simon is overwhelmed by what he is, but Jesus speaks of what he will become. And this is always how Jesus speaks to us. In verse 10, Jesus says to him, From now on, you will catch men. The Greek term that's translated catch literally means to capture alive. It underscores the gospel's power to give life. Peter's not only called to preach this message. He's called to experience it. And the same is true for you. Jesus has plans for you. Plans to work in you and through you. To work things that are far beyond anything that you could imagine for yourself. Plans to give you eternal life and to make you an emissary of life. It's no wonder that verse 11 says, So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Who wouldn't? Who wouldn't? Henry Varley once said, It remains to be seen what God will do with a man who gives himself up wholly to him. But I beg to disagree. I say that it has been seen. Again and again. With men and women, boys and girls, ordinary people just like us. People who caught a glimpse of what Jesus could do with their lives and who abandoned themselves to his grace. 
So I leave you with this question. Just what can God do with an ordinary person? What can God do with you? More than you think. More than you know. Anything he wants. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, like Peter, we are aware of our weakness. We are aware of where we fall short. And we are sometimes daunted by the task that has been placed before us. This morning, expand our vision, not of ourselves, but of Christ. Give us ears to hear and hearts to respond. And send us wherever you will. In Jesus' name. Amen.